Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Rihanna Patrick and today we're looking into an idea to resurrect the live music industry that we all know was brought to its knees during COVID and has never really recovered. What we were looking at was, does a small tax offset provide an incentive for somebody to think about the live music? And the overwhelming loud answer is yes. So this tax tweak, as it's being called, is being predicted to boost the incomes of artists and venue owners, which could be a $200 million boost to our economy. So how did the idea come about and how will it work? Well, that's our briefing topic in the second half of this episode. But first, Natasha Belling joins me for today's headlines. It's Friday, December 9. Well, after months of speculation and anticipation, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's Netflix documentary aired for the first time last night. The first three episodes dropped last night, with the remaining three set to be released on the 15th of December. You were late. Mm-hmm. He kept texting when he was late. He's like, I'm in traffic, I'm so sorry, I'm in traffic, I'm so sorry. I was panicking, I was freaking out. I was so sweating. That audio was from last night's episode when the pair first met and Harry was half an hour late for their first date. We also learnt they met via Instagram. Yeah, Harry says um, as part of what we saw in the first um, three episodes that dropped that men in the royal family are expected to think with their head and not their heart. Um, He said the royal family expected men to marry someone who fitted the mould, perhaps not someone they were actually fond of. He's also said he's blocked out any early memories he had of his mother, the late Diana, Princess of Wales. He said the majority of his memories are being swamped by the paparazzi. Very incredible documentary last night. Very interesting to note the new angle this morning is the fact that despite the start of the doco, uh, Netflix was saying the royal family had been consulted, but now there's allegations from both Kensington and Buckingham Palace the royals were not asked for comments. Natasha, I didn't get a chance to watch it. I was already in bed by the time it dropped. I watched the three eps. What did you think? <laughs> Look, I my general feeling is it was incredibly orchestrated It was very much about moulding the public's perception of what Harry and Meghan want the world to see. My real feeling is I felt incredibly sorry for Prince Harry. I think he's still incredibly sad. He's still incredibly traumatised by what he experienced with losing his mum and continues to be traumatised by, uh, you know, being estranged from his family. I think a lot of it came across as not being very authentic and very contrived. Mm, Well, I'm going to have to dip into it, I think. Absolutely. You need to watch it. And the new eps, as we mentioned earlier, will drop next week. National Cabinet will meet today over the energy price crisis. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will host the meeting from ISO at Kirribilli House. The Commonwealth is hoping to reach a deal on skyrocketing gas and electricity prices with a cap on wholesale gas prices, but... They're still talking with New South Wales and Queensland into trying to cap coal prices. The conversations that have been happening, uh, not just with the states, as important as that is, but with the regulators, with various parts of Australian industry, uh, have been really productive. Uh, There'll be more conversations. We're still aiming to land something before Christmas. That's Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers talking to the ABC there. And there's also a new capacity mechanism which all states and territories have signed on to, which means renewable energy companies will be paid to keep supply on standby. 
This is important because this will unleash at least $10 billion of investment in renewable energy across Australia. Energy Minister Chris Bowen there and coal and gas have been excluded. Overnight, David Warner's manager has made some bombshell claims about certain unnamed Cricket Australia officials. James Erskine has suggested those officials gave players permission to tamper with the ball more than a year before the 2018 ball tampering scandal. He alleges they were given approval after Australia's loss to South Africa in late 2016. Cricket Australia is yet to respond. Yeah, Natasha, this comes after Cricket Australia and Warner were told that the review process into his leadership ban would be made public, despite both parties wanting it to stay behind closed doors. And the decision was made by an independent panel, but Warner has now pulled his application to have his leadership ban lifted. Iran has carried out its first execution over anti-government protests. The man was hanged for injuring a security guard with a knife and blocking a street in Iran's capital, Tehran. It comes after protests erupted across the nation after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in September. Yeah, the protests represent one of the biggest challenges to the Islamic Republic since its establishment in 1979 and Amnesty International has warned Iranian authorities are seeking the death penalty for at least 21 people. And WNBA star Brittany Griner has been freed from a Russian jail in a prisoner swap with the US. And I'm proud that today we have made one more family whole again. So welcome home, Brittany. U.S. President Joe Biden there and the American basketball star was swapped with a notorious Russian arms dealer, Victor Boot, who has been called the Merchant of Death. And Griner is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and had been arrested at Moscow Airport in February for possessing cannabis oil, which she was using for a sports injury. She says it was an honest mistake. Griner had been sentenced to nine years in a penal colony. Thanks, Tash. And coming up, a really important story. If, like me, you love live music, well, Katrina Blowers and I talk about a new tax scheme that could rejuvenate Australia's struggling live music sector. COVID definitely affected some sectors worse than others, Rihanna. I remember Tom and I talked to Ruben Stiles from Peking Duck on the briefing during the height of the pandemic about how sports venues were packed to the rafters, but artists and promoters were having gigs and festivals cancelled. It was a really weird time. And I can really understand the anger of so many musicians and sadly so many live music venues still haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, it's been a tough few years and I mean on top of COVID there's another reason that they're giving us as to why live music hasn't made a full comeback. Our tax system. While there are tax offsets for all sorts of other sectors like the screen industry and even the digital gaming industry, there's nothing for live music venues and if that doesn't change it could kill the pathway for many emerging musicians. But the music industry has come up with an idea they think could supercharge the COVID recovery. Joining us on the briefing to tell us all about it is the CEO of APRA, Dean Ormston. Dean, it's been a big couple of years for the industry. And I mean, what's the reality of being a venue owner or a musician at the moment in Australia? It has been a really tough period and um, and in most of the conversations we've had in the last couple of weeks, people refer obviously to COVID, but um, if you were a live 
music performer, artist, and uh, and a live music venue, then the period's been tougher for longer than that, um, given bushfires that were happening in the 18 months around the country prior to COVID. So we saw a big hit to live music um, already happening across the eastern seaboard and round to South Australia as well um, in the uh, roughly the 12 to 18 months before COVID. And we were looking at, you know, how we were supporting our members and uh, our live music licensees in that space. And then, of course, there was not much respite and then COVID hit. And as everybody knows, it was a dramatic impact. And as particularly for live music artists, their world came to a grinding halt in March in 2019, where all live music was shut around the country. It's been, I think, dramatic economically in that part of the music industry. But I also very aware of, um, you know, broader social impact and some very, very traumatic personal experiences for a number of people in the live music sector. Yeah, talk to us about some of those personal anecdotes. What have you heard? There's a, a music industry support organisation that we all contribute to and help fundraise and it's called Support Act. Well, they were completely swamped when COVID hit and live music um, shut down. And it was everybody from the actual gigging artist to the people who work around the gigging artist. So in particular, road crew, production people, all sorts of people who work in the ecosystem that sits around the immediate live music performance. And we have many stories of those people, many people calling on Support Act desperate for help. From a very direct APRA AMCOS perspective, we were inundated with members calling us saying, is there anything we could do with their royalties and and royalties that might have been coming down the line? And we looked at what measures we could do to support, which included fast-tracking royalty payments and providing grants uh, to keep people sort of working and doing something during the COVID shutdown. So the impact was really deep and it's still there. During COVID, when we had a a couple of those moments of respite, things did pick up, but they haven't recovered at all. And sitting here today, our stats are showing that live music activity across the country is still barely at 50% of pre-COVID activity. Yeah, there's no doubt, Dean, that COVID has really affected the music industry and particularly live music in, in massive ways that I think you know, we're only starting to see what that effect is like now, but what's the model that APRA AMCOS is proposing? And I mean, how could something like a tax offset help? The live music industry wasn't necessarily doing it really well before COVID and the bushfires. Putting on live music is is not their primary part of their business. It's something they, they like doing and they like the idea of, but it's not necessarily front of mind. So we had seen it as an area of the music ecosystem, the broader ecosystem that needed help and support. COVID just exacerbated that and really sort of highlighted to everyone that something dramatic needs to happen. We had looked at how something like a tax loss could could work back in 2016. So we had done some work with Ernst & Young to say there are various parts of industry and even within the creative industries that already have tax offsets that are utilised for one reason or another. So we'd looked at how and where would you apply an offset in the music industry and the live sector looked like a really obvious place. And the key reason we were looking at it was because 
you can't really help the base of the pyramid in terms of the Australian music industry without looking at where are the stages and the opportunities for people to perform. And if you're looking at where the stages are, we only have one opera house, but we have over 4,000 venues across Australia that already present live music or were before COVID. Ernst & Young did the detailed study in 2016. We presented that back to government at that point. Didn't really get much traction. So we sort of, in the last 18 months, have gone away and um, had a different organisation look at it, and this time Oxford Economics, just to get a slightly different perspective. What we were looking at was, does a small tax offset provide an incentive for somebody to think about the live music? And the overwhelming loud answer is yes. So how do you think this will work? One of the things that has also emerged from the pandemic is artists getting paid properly for gigs. And it's not just musicians, but anyone providing a service in a live capacity. Rihanna and I were talking off air about how we're being asked so often now to MC or moderate things for free. There just doesn't seem to be the money there that there used to be. Do you reckon this offset will help in that sense too? The idea of the offset really is to change the perception of presenting live music in the mind of the venue. So in the same way that they look at how their restaurant works and other parts of entertainment offerings, for them to sit down and go, okay, part of my plan for this year is I'm going to be presenting live music and, oh, great, there's a tax offset available for that. I can tick a box and we're off, you know, and it needs to work in a way that is simple for venues. And the idea would be that, there would be particular expenses relating to the presentation of live music that the venue would be able to claim as part of this offset. And that's where the, the leverage comes in in terms of how you work the offset and how you manage the cost of it. So from a government perspective, obviously, the concern around an offset is how will it not blow out? How do we ensure the thing doesn't cost four times as much as we thought it would do? And what we've said to government is we know exactly how many pubs, clubs, restaurants, bars, cafes there are across Australia. We can guesstimate how many might like to do music, how many already do music now. So it's quantifiable. And then you can look at the related expenses that we know already, like what does it cost typically to put on a solo musician? What do you need in terms of production values for a band? What should you spend in marketing for a gig? So for instance, to say, a pub that already presents live music, if we modelled to say, well, 5% of your relevant expenses could be claimable against this offset, what would that look like? And for venues that don't currently present live music, we looked at a, an actual dollar figure and the modelling said, well, let's in this scenario say it's either 5% of expenses for a venue that currently presents live music or $12,000 in cash for a venue that's never presented live music. So Oxford Economics has modelled all that out and under the scenario I just outlined for you, it's potentially, we think, cash flow positive for government. So it's therefore not a risk to government. Dean, the pandemic also affected, I guess, the behaviour of ticket buying, for instance, and with touring being a main source of income for artists. Do you hope a plan like this also brings confidence back for music fans buying tickets in live music again, but also helps in that bigger music ecology that you were talking about of bringing that skilled workforce back that left like those roadies and those soundies that went looking for other jobs? It's like anything, whether it's retail or hospitality, you need a number of places in an area presenting live music 
in order to change behaviour and get people excited and motivated and out there doing it. So if you're looking at Oxford Street in Sydney, well, there's not a lot of live music venues down there and there's a, there's a lot of energy in, in Sydney about how do we reactivate some of our streets and precincts. If you're an artist, you know, where are the stages for people to hone their craft? Or if you're a career artist, you know, where are the places that you can play regularly? They're just not there. Yeah, it's kind of what Malcolm Gladwell said in that book, The Tipping Point. The reason the Beatles were such a phenomenon is because they'd honed their craft in 10,000 hours of live performances before anyone had even heard of them. All right, so how do we get from where we are now to where we need to be? What's the pathway? Having the work done by an Oxford Economics and the previous work by Ernst Young has been important in terms of here's the nuts and bolts about how it could work. Um, We've presented that to government. We now need really government to look at it um, and Treasury in particular to model it. Um, But really before we even get that far, we need champions both within government and and outside government to to say this is really important. And uh, I'm really happy that the head of the Hotels Association and the club sector are all on board. Um, So we're now talking to many venues in a more detailed way around how this offset could work for them because we need many, many voices now talking to um, their local MP, to their local government to say, where's the live music venue where I live? You know, why aren't there more opportunities for artists to perform on stages? It will take time. It, It will not be an easy win. But we think the time is now. There's a really strong argument. And we do have a government a Prime Minister and an Arts Minister who are live music fans. So we do have people who are interested in the house, so to speak. So we should make hay while the sun shines. That was the CEO of APRA AMCOS, Dean Ormston there. It sounds like a good idea in theory. I know the government never likes to give up tax revenue, but I don't know. What do you make of it? I mean, considering how important music is to our lives, you think it would be a given, right? And after what has really happened in the pandemic for the live music sector, it only makes sense that there is something there to help when at the very beginning, there wasn't a lot of help for musicians or live music venues. So I think something like this could really revitalise, bring confidence back, particularly with fans buying tickets these days is not really a thing. You know, the new normal is you wait till closer to the gig, um, which doesn't help if you're a musician trying to get some kind of tour in place by selling a whole lot of tickets ahead of when you're due to arrive. Okay, that's it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Jamila will be here tomorrow with the weekend briefing. Jem, who have you got? Look, this weekend I am having a chat to Anna Spargo-Ryan, who is an award-winning author who's based in Melbourne. She is also an agoraphobe. That means that Anna hasn't, or at least very rarely, has left the relatively small radius around her home in a very long time. She is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met and we had an excellent conversation about the fact that for her, COVID lockdowns meant she could finally participate in life events that had been closed off to her for literally decades. And now that we are back to our new normal, whatever normal means, that's been taken away again and she's grieving that for a second time. This is a conversation with someone who has experienced mental illness for a very long time and in quite intense ways. 
And there are lessons, I think, in Anna's beautiful words for anyone who has experienced mental illness or indeed who cares about their own mental health. And that should be all of us. All right. Don't miss your weekend briefing in your feed tomorrow. That's it from us. Have a great weekend and we'll catch you Monday. Listener.